Well, good morning, Greenwich, and welcome to the Tuesday, June 28th edition of the Basement Academy. Uh, if you tuned in yesterday, then you know that we're in a little bit of an interlude. We've been studying the book of James uh, for a couple days. Uh, we're, uh, I'm offering some pastoral reflections on the Supreme Court decision last Friday uh, to reverse the Roe versus Wade decision uh, that had stood since 1973. And so uh, I think it's a worthwhile pause. Um, if you haven't listened or watched to yesterday's, that's probably going to be helpful. I mean, certainly go ahead and tune in today, but some of the context and some preliminary uh, work uh, was done yesterday. So uh, let's begin with a morning psalm. It's a hard psalm to pray, but it's important because it's in the context of animosity, hostility, um, some kind of anger and attack. And in a situation like this, the tendency is to look at other people uh, on the other side of this issue, say the abortion issue, and to see them as the enemy and maybe to feel attacked in some places. And so I'm sure there are people on both sides of this issue that could pray this. And so let's, uh, let's try to give voice to some of our emotions and prayers. Psalm 58. Do you rulers indeed speak justly? Do you judge uprightly among men? No. In your heart you devise injustice, and your hands mete out violence on the earth. Even from birth the wicked go astray. From the womb they are wayward and speak lies. Their venom is like the venom of a snake, like that of a cobra that has stopped its ears that will not heed the tune of the charmer, however skillful the enchanter may be. Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Tear out, O Lord, the fangs of the lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away. When they draw the bow, let their arrows be blunted. Like a slug melting away as it moves along, like a stillborn child, may they not see the sun. Before your pots can feel the heat of the thorns, whether they be green or dry, the wicked will be swept away. The righteous will be glad when they are avenged, when they bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. Then men will say, surely the righteous still are rewarded. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. Mm, you could feel the emotion, the passion, the intensity of that anger and frustration. And I observe on both sides of the current debate around Roe v. Wade and the reversal, so much passion, so much energy, even within the Christian community. So not, again, just out in the world, in the secular community, as it were, but within the church. And so let us be thoughtful, let us be prayerful, let us bleed off some of our passion and energy and anger uh, through our prayers, and let us look as generously and graciously as we can at others uh, with whom we disagree. And so this is the, the initial framework that I offered yesterday with other thoughts, but taking Cain's kind of rhetorical question misguided as it is, after he slays his brother Abel, God comes to him and says, Cain, where is your brother? And then dismissively, Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? And you can hear kind of the derision and contempt kind of dripping off his lips. Uh, 
um, the faithful community has for centuries understood, yes, we are our brother's keeper. God made us to care for one another, to keep one another. And so if we can see each other on the two sides of this debate in the most noble and gracious and generous spirit that each is trying to keep the brother or the sister. So the pro-choice community is trying to keep the sister, uh, the one who finds themselves in an unwanted or unplanned pregnancy and trying to protect and keep and honor her life. The pro-life community is seeking to keep and protect the sister or brother that is in the womb, the child that is being formed. Today what I'd like to do is talk about some tensions that I have observed over the years and that are arising again uh, in this uh, issue, over the issue of, of abortion that is you know, kind of been called to the surface again by the reversal uh, of the Roe decision. Um, one tension may be that some of you will not be happy with me, <laughs> that I don't come down more firmly you know, on the position that you want me to come down on um, as I go through these reflections. For most of us, we treat this as a very black and white issue. For pro-lifers, it's about saving the child and we're thrilled at the, um, uh, at the overturning of the Roe uh, versus Wade decision. For pro-choicers, uh, we're all about honoring the mother, honoring the woman, and distressed, greatly distressed at the um, at the reversal of the Supreme Court decision. You see, I'm a pastor. I've got convictions, I've got beliefs, absolutely as a Christian, but I'm also a pastor. And I pastor all kinds of people who fall all over the political spectrum and have all kinds of views uh, on these social and cultural and, yes, moral and biblical issues. Um, it's not that I'm afraid of offending people. Obviously, I will say what needs to be said uh, from the pulpit, in the, in the, at the lectern, and, and even in these uh, forums. It's not so much that I'm afraid of offending people. It's that I'm trying to engage people. What I have learned over the years, and I observe in others who are strident in the things that they say, particularly pastors who are strident, is it tends to be off-putting and there's no opportunity to influence. And so I would like to engage both communities, the pro-life and the pro-choice community, to, and I'm, again, I'm speaking in a Christian context, I'm speaking pastorally to Greenwich Presbyterian Church. And so we have trust. I, 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 I'm counting on the trust that has been built up over time that we have. And so I am trying to engage both sides of the issue to think Christianly, to think biblically, to think theologically, to be concerned with their own character formation and the expression of their lives, their words, their actions and attitudes. And I'm concerned to stretch us, to grow and mature into Christ's likeness. And so I do pastoral theology. That may be an interesting or new phrase to you. Pastoral theology, you know, pure theology is just what's the Bible say? What's the, how do you frame it up? Pastoral theology seeks to apply the scriptures and apply theological frameworks and concepts to the lives of real people. 
So I don't deal with hypothetical people. I don't deal with anonymous people. I don't deal with straw men, which is typically what happens in these kind of discussions. We erect a straw man and then we knock it down. And this happens on both sides. I deal with real people. And so I think there's some similarity to the issue at play, which is constitutional law. Constitutional law is tricky. It's, it's complex. It's nuanced. It requires years of study, reflection, um, debate, challenge, experience, reflection again, wisdom, humility, all of this. And, and there are judicial philosophies that are in play. So similarly, theology, and in particular pastoral theology, is complex, it's nuanced, it requires years of study and experience and reflection. There needs to be humility and, uh, that, that attends it. And so what I have observed over the years in my vocational calling is that uh, while I am very familiar with these scriptures, very familiar with theological concepts all over, you know, multiple theological concepts from these scriptures, I am struck often by how frequently people from the pew, yourselves, tell me with emphatic confidence what the thing is and how the thing should be handled. And I go, okay, if you were sitting in my chair, you might think differently. Because most of those conversations are dealt in the abstract, they're in the hypothetical, or they're often with straw men, not real people. And so constitutional law works case by case. So the justices are being accused of having lied under oath in their confirmation hearings. They did no such thing. They did no such thing. Because a, a good judge understands that it, I need the facts of the case in front of me and then I will apply principles of law and precedent and, 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 and judicial philosophy and there's, but it's, it, it requires an active case, a real situation, not an abstract hypothetical situation. So it is with pastoral theology. And so I have had occasion to be in conversation with women who have contemplated abortion, who have had abortions. And so I've been in real conversations with real people about these things. Now, I have convictions, deep convictions, uh, around these matters. But my goal is not to win arguments. My goal is to win people to the truth and to the Savior and to godliness and, and to holiness and to sanctification and to a mature life in, in Christ. And so... Um, and so the, the reality is in this discussion, I think few of us are directly impacted. Few of us who are probably within the sound of my voice will be directly impacted. Um, and we will have little influence on the final outcome. We will have influence because we will vote for legislators. You know, we will have occasion to be engaged, but it's the legislators at state legislatures that will be determining the next steps of this, right? Because the, the row reversal has turned it back to the states to determine. And, and so it will be state senators and, and um, 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 General Assembly delegates who will be determining this for the Commonwealth of Virginia. So at most, we vote, we advocate, we write letters, and we pray. 
But the biggest place, I believe, where each of us will intersect with this issue is going to be in conversations and in attitudes. Conversations we'll have, usually with each other, kind of congratulating our, our win or uh, um, um, uh, lamenting the loss, depending on what side of this uh, situation you have fallen on. But most of us will intersect this issue in a conversation with a family member, typically a younger family member, a child or a grandchild who probably thinks differently, right? Uh, may think differently uh, than yourself on this. And so part of my work uh, yesterday, today, going forward as pastor is to help real people engage the truth and to grow and to do it in a very compassionate, wise, measured way. So all that being said, having offered the foundational framework of being our brother's keepers, let's avoid the dismissiveness of Cain, uh, where we haughtily say, am I my brother's keeper? Let's not dismiss anyone uh, on the other side of, of uh, how you feel about this. And I wanna talk about a couple tensions that I uh, have observed. Uh, the first is this that there are two parties to keep in this situation. We want to keep the mother and we want to keep the child. There's no way around it. We have to see it that way, okay? Of course we should protect and honor the life of the mother, which is why societies, including our own, have pretty consistently acted to protect the life of a mother. If the pregnancy is threatening the life of the mother, we take the baby. We lose the baby, we keep the life of, of the mother. And so of course we act on the benefit and, and on behalf of, of mothers. But of course we should protect the unborn child. Jeremiah, our scriptures inform us, Jeremiah was known before he was born. In the womb, God set him apart. How could God set someone apart that has not a person? Well, because the, the, the child in the womb is a person made in God's image, is forming, as we read in Psalm 139, in the secret place when I was formed there, there your eyes saw me. As we're being knit together in our mother's womb, God sees us, God knows us, even before we've seen the light of day. All the days ordained for us are written in God's book. Before one of them comes to be, even in the womb, God knows us. Psalm 51, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful in my mother's womb when I was conceived. And so this reality, um, um, Elizabeth and Mary, Elizabeth carrying whom we come to know as John the Baptist, and then her younger cousin Mary, who's now carrying Jesus, they're about six months apart, I think, in their pregnancies. And when Mary, uh, when, when Elizabeth hears Mary's voice, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, i.e. John the Baptist, leaps. The Savior is near. The one that he will herald <laughs> as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's already response that's taking place in the womb. And so we make a clear, defensible, biblical argument for life in the womb that should be protected. And so for many of us, if not most of us, it's black and white. It's either you come down on the side of the mother, you come down on the side of uh, the child. But I think there's tension there, okay? And it's not because I don't believe the child should be protected, so please don't hear that at all. 
but it's because I'm in conversation with these people. And I recognize a woman who faces this is in crisis, sometimes is in confusion, is anxious, is distressed. So in the same way, I work with couples, many couples over the years, who are contemplating divorce. I'm always on the side of the vows. I tell them, I'm always going to come down on the side of the vows, that you took vows, you are obligated to keep those vows. But I recognize that some of these couples will actually go through the divorce process. And I'm going to stand with each of them. I'm not going to take sides. I want to work and, and, and work alongside and pastorally um, uh, be in conversation and pray with and journey with each of these people. It's just an experience I've had over the years that has shaped my pastoral theology. So someone contemplating abortion, I'm always going to come down on the side of life. I will always come down on the side of life. But we recognize people make choices, don't they? And so I'm going to stand, I'm not going to condemn, I'm not going to judge because the scriptures guide us in that regard also. So again, I'm, I'm offering this brother's keeper framework for your benefit to help you grow and mature in your understanding of somebody on the other side of the aisle to ennoble their position. If you're pro-choice and you stand absolutely with the right of the mother um, to, to determine her health care, do not look at pro-lifers as moral monsters. They are not. They're seeking to keep the brother, the sister that is in the womb. If you're a pro-lifer, do not look at a mother who contemplates and perhaps goes through with abortion. Do not look at her as a moral monster and a murderer. They're not. That <laughs> there's someone who who is trying to figure life out, and so someone who supports that. Tr we're trying to keep that brother, that sister, uh, also. And so let's not look at each other as moral monsters. Let's look at each other as image bearers who are doing our best to try to keep a brother or a sister in, in crisis. Now, first tension. Second tension, the language and rhetoric that I've heard in the last week or so about women, you know, that, that we preserve bodily autonomy and sovereignty of the woman. I understand the concern. I, I believe I understand the concern because I certainly wouldn't want anybody telling me if I'm going to the dock, <laughs> I don't want somebody telling me, insurance company or anybody else, you can't do that. Uh, who are you to tell me I can't do something with my body and my life in conversation with uh, a doctor? And so we all understand that intuitively, that no one likes to be told what they can and can't do. Children don't like it. Adults certainly don't like it. And so we each desire and, and appreciate and enjoy the freedom we have in our society to act as we will in a thousand different ways. We, we honor and, and rejoice in this measure of autonomy and sovereignty, as it were. But I've got some tension around that language of bodily autonomy and sovereignty because for Christians, it's never about total bodily autonomy. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're actually going to study that this coming Sunday in our Holy Spirit series. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. 
i.e. the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, Paul is writing in the context of sexual immorality, sexual freedom. I'm free to do whatever I want with my body, bodily autonomy. If I want to hook up, I can hook up and nobody's going to tell me I can't. And Paul's saying, not so. For the Christian, you have been purchased. Jesus purchased you at the cross. You are not your own. Your body no longer belongs to yourself. You are now the sacred receptacle. You are a, a holy temple for the Holy Spirit. And so Christians are never totally autonomous. We should never assert uh, and be defiant around our commitment to total bodily autonomy because we're not. Um, I, I, I recognize <laughs> that this desire for autonomy and sovereignty also has an echo from the fall. Adam and Eve choosing autonomy from God and taking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They said, God, we will determine good and evil apart from you. We will know it ourselves. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents the human families usurping the prerogative of God, grasping that which belonged to God alone and taking it to themselves. We will be the ones to determine good and evil. Adam says, I will determine good and evil. Eve says, I will determine good and evil, which now sets them at odds because they might not agree. And so the human family has asserted itself autonomously over and against God. This is the characteristic of the original sin, autonomy from God. So I'm a little nervous when I hear people asserting in this Roe v. Wade discussion bodily autonomy and sovereignty Christians ought not take that position too, too, too strongly. And I offer as biblical witness an alternative. Uh, the Virgin Mary, the ga angel Gabriel appears to her, hails her as highly favored among women, uh, declares that she will be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and a child will be conceived in her. And that child will be the Christ, the one who brings redemption to the world, the fulfillment of all the uh, ancient promises to Abraham uh, and the world. And you know how Mary reacts? Does she defy by saying, I insist on bodily autonomy? No, of course not. May it be done to me according to your word. She receives this <laughs> reality all of the pain, all of the shame, all of the community reprobation that came because of that. She began to be talked about. Joseph was thinking to kind of break the relationship off. And yet she submitted to this reality. She submitted that her body was not her own, but she became uh, the one who, who bears the Christ in, into the world. Now, am I suggesting in the least way, in any way possible, that women should be submissive in all situations of rape and incest and carry that child? I, I, please, don't make something out of my words that I'm not suggesting. I am offering that, that Christians have additional resources that guide us and inform us as we think about this Roe versus Wade decision, this abortion issue. Let us not think politically. Let's set the politics aside and let's think biblically, theologically. Let's think compassionately. 
So some tension around that sovereignty issue. With respect to sovereignty, there's some age-old tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility and accountability. Typically, we talk about this in the context of salvation, the Arminian-Calvinist debate, who is responsible for salvation? Do we choose God? Does God choose us? I'm going to set that aside for another day. But applied to this abortion situation, the, 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 the life decision, the sanctity of life, God gave us the capacity. God sovereignly created us in his image and gave us a capacity to choose. We have rational faculties. We have mind. We have emotions. We have a will. We can make decisions. But we never make these decisions independent of a moral universe. So we have agency. That's the language of speaking. We have agency. I can act uh, according to my own will, my own decision, you know, my own uh, evaluation of the world. I can act. I have agency. But I never have neutral agency. I'm, I'm, I'm acting in a moral universe that God has established. There is good. There is evil. There is right. There is wrong. We insist on this. God is author. God is judge. And of course, as I just alluded, the sin uh, in the garden, the fall, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the human family brought that to themselves. We will be the ones to determine good and evil. And so the tension around that comes into the abortion debate because people are free. People are free to choose abortions. Happens all the time, right? Uh, women, and perhaps with their partner, they, they engage in that conversation with the doctor. Decisions are made. Money is paid. The act is done, and it is over, and we move on. It's a medical procedure. The choice is made. But that choice is always made in the context of human responsibility and accountability. Every one of us, Scripture says and is very clear, will stand before God and have to give an account for our lives. And so I just would say, let's keep that in place. Let's, keep, let, let, let's be aware of that. You know, the scripture does say, um, thankfully, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A wise and mature life begins with an understanding that I will have to give an account of my life someday. The fear of the Lord, the awareness of, of God in all things is central. And so Christians affirm that God alone is judge of the human mind and heart and, and action and will. So in this sovereignty, God is sovereignly the judge. He gives us the freedom to choose. There's tension here. We're accountable and responsible for our lives. And so it is not just with the woman and the doctor who choose to engage in this uh, procedure that we call abortion that ends a uh, viable pregnancy. But so everyone will be judged and have to stand and give account to God for their speech, their attitudes, and their actions towards such people. So it's not just pro-choicers that are going to come under judgment is what some people think. Pro-lifers are thinking it's, oh, it's only pro-choicers that are going to be judged by God because this is a, a black and white moral issue. Let me offer to you, and this is the tension, that on the pro-life side of things, the attitudes, the actions, um, sometimes the condescension, 
um, and contempt that comes towards those who've had an abortion or who advocate for that. That spirit of judgment, uh, that spirit of um, animosity uh, is itself uh, wrong. And we ought not look at people that way. And so um, I'll, I'll, I'll offer that, that there's some tension here. We all have a choice in this matter of how we are going to respond, how we're going to speak, the attitudes we're going to uh, engage in. Um, and so the, 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 the tension around this to, to some degree leads to maybe just one last thought. And then I, I, I was going to offer some considerations, but I think that's going to have to wait for a, a third day. Uh, we're at almost at 30 minutes right now. For most of us, the abortion debate is, again, less, less about how I'm going to be impacted. It's more about how we speak and, and think about it. And so let me offer to you, um, and, and this is kind of stepping away from the, the abortion issue, but it's, it's, a, it's a framework. It's possible to do the right thing in the wrong way, which then shapes whether or not it is the right thing, right? Right now, what we're listening to is mostly noise, uh, the protests, the advocacy, the cheering, and the lamenting on you know, either side of this issue. It's noise. In the position of advocate, and we have people advocating for, for the pro-choice uh, position, we have people advocating for the pro-life uh, position. I, I fall generally on that pro-life. You, you, you understand that, I think, right? But I'm for people, right? So in the position of an advocate, we always think our position is right. I mean, right? I mean, if, if I didn't, I wouldn't advocate for a position that I thought to be wrong, okay? So we, we tend to double down on that sense of rightness, why else would we, ad would we advocate for it? But in the process of advocating for the right thing, you know, the position that we hold, we often do it in the wrong way. We do it with such noise and with such clamor and with such animosity and such condescension towards those on the other side of the issue that we run afoul of what Scripture also calls us to be about. And so outwardly, we might advocate for the, uh, our position, but inwardly, we become full of contempt and resentment or dismissiveness or derision or condescension and a host of other attitudes that we have towards other people. We demonize uh, people on the other side of this who hold the view. And as we've uh, learned in our James study, was it James uh, chapter 4, brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. But there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who was able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? And so what I observe mostly in the abortion discussion and debate over the years, over many years, is a deep spirit of judgment of slander, of condescension, 
of holding others who bear the glorious image of God, holding them in contempt for the position that they hold. And this happens on both sides, right? So pro-choice looks at pro-lifers uh, this way and pro-lifers look at pro-choicers that way. So it's, it's even Stephen, right? This is not a partisan thing. It's a human reality. We tend to look at others who disagree with us on something that we hold deeply and we tend to view those people very negatively. Let's not do that. And so here's where I'm trying to engage in pastoral theology, that as we work our way through this, and I'll, and I'll share some considerations tomorrow kind of going forward, how do we conduct ourselves? How do we think? Because there's plenty of issues that are still to be explored in this. But these are tensions. And so we have to have an appetite for the tension. Most of us don't. Most of us want to resolve tension. Most of us want to, I don't like feeling uncomfortable. And so I'm just going to, I'm going to go black and white. I'm going to get it done with. And then I'm going to judge people who don't stand where I am. But scripture doesn't give us that option. We must, must, must always seek to be our brothers or our sister's keeper. We must always seek to love one another. We must love our neighbors, ourselves. We must even love our enemy. And so Jesus doesn't let us. It's grace and truth. The grace we hold towards one another, the truth that we seek as we study these scriptures and, and press on uh, towards moral righteousness. But let us do so with humility, with wisdom, with compassion, with kindness, with mercy. We who have been shown mercy, let us seek to show mercy as best we can. So uh, so we'll stop here. We'll pick up again. I thought it was going to be two days, but I think we're going to do three days. And tomorrow I'll share a number of considerations uh, going forward uh, around this. So, so thanks for listening. Uh, let's take a moment to pray. And so, Father, thank you for the mercy that has been shown to us and to the world through Jesus Christ. We simply plead his mercy for all who are involved in this actively, who are in a position of conflict or crisis uh, and are contemplating taking the life of a child uh, and whose life may be endangered in some way, the mother. So, Lord, we just pray beyond what we could ever understand in each of these situations. We, we trust you to be at work sovereignly and help us to walk in humility, uh, wisdom, grace, and truth. As we pray in the name of the Savior uh, who showed us this grace and truth, even as he taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. May God be gracious to you. May God bless you. May God lift up his face and his countenance and his favor upon you. May he do this through Jesus Christ in the power of his Holy Spirit this day and forevermore. Amen.